0: All right, what is today? Well, in, uh, on the church calendar, um, it used to be that every Protestant church celebrated Reformation Sunday. Uh, what's Reformation Sunday? It's the day we remember that Martin Luther, uh, back in 1517, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Basically, he was saying, hey, I'd like to propose some things that we talk about to reform the church. There had been a a number of corrupt practices that had crept in. But then, uh, rather than the church receiving that, well, he was kicked out. Now, out of the Reformation came the five solas. Here's what... Uh, And and these are not brand new. Some people like to say, oh, uh, Luther started these things. No, Luther recovered these things. That based on scripture alone, sola scriptura, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, In other words, we're saved by faith alone, not by works. Now, why is this important? Well, This morning, um, as you came before God and before the Holy Spirit we we uh, sang about idols and and, uh, uh, had you think about what sin there might be in your life, what do you do now? What do you do with that sin? If you confess it to God and you have to work to earn his forgiveness... You, you leave church this morning with a burden on your back. What do you have to do to earn God's forgiveness? And the church had fallen into a system of trying to earn God's uh, grace, which is a contradiction in terms. And what Luther did and the Reformers did is they recovered from Scripture the fact that that when Christ died, he paid the full price. And we are saved by faith alone, not faith plus a bunch of sacraments and prayers and works that you have to do to earn God's forgiveness. That's why this is important. Now, what better book to be in on Reformation Sunday than the book of Galatians, which is all about Paul uh, defending The truth that we are justified by faith alone, not by works. Right? Um, Let me kind of give you the outline of where we are in the study of this book. In fact, you could divide the book into three main sections. The first two chapters are Paul's autobiographical defense of himself as an apostle. He autobiographically says, "Even though you guys think I'm a lesser apostle." I was chosen by Christ before I was born. Uh, uh, He he met me on the road to Damascus. And the gospel he gave me uh, was directly from him. I didn't learn it secondhand. And then when I went and talked to the apostles themselves, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Um, All that in the first two chapters, Paul is establishing that he is a true apostle with the true gospel. Then the middle section of the book, which we're in right now, chapter 3 and 4, is his apologetic defense of the gospel. He gives arguments and illustrations and quotes Scripture and tries to show that Scripture has always taught that justification is by faith alone, not by works. That's where we are now. And then the last two chapters are his application of the gospel. Don't worry, we'll get there. There is a, t- uh, a time uh, when all this uh, gets applied to how to live. Okay, Now, we started this middle section last week, and we saw that Paul gave, uh, last week, three arguments uh, showing that we are justified by faith alone. I'm going to say that these are arguments and illustrations. Uh, that'll make sense later on. But last week, he gave the argument from experience. Hey, Galatians, how did you get the Holy Spirit? Was it through works or by believing? I was there, Paul says. When I preached and you believed, and the Holy Spirit changed your lives. So that's the argument from experience. Then there's the argument from Abraham. How was Abraham saved? Genesis 15, 15, 6. He believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. Before he was circumcised, before he did anything, uh, Paul was or Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. So there's the argument from Abraham. Then thirdly, The argument from Scripture. Paul quotes four Old Testament Scriptures two from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus, one from the book of Habakkuk, all teaching the same thing that we're justified by faith, not by works. So that's what we covered last week. Today, we want to cover the argument from the covenants, then two illustrations the illustration from guardians and the illustration from heirs. Okay? Now, I got to challenge you this morning. Did you bring your A game? Are you awake? I need you to be tuned in because this is, let me, I don't want to say it's complicated. Um, a lot of people, when they read the the book of Galatians, they're up to this point, they're like, yeah, this is great. And then they hit this next argument, the argument from covenants, and they go, I have no idea what Paul is talking about here. So I want you to... Uh, to really tune in. Imagine there's going to be a test after today's sermon, and you don't get any bread or coffee unless you pass the test. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, Grandma, you better pay attention, okay? okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. In fact, here's how I like to do this. Um, normally, what I, I do is I explain the scripture. And then after I explain the scripture, I give an illustration uh, to help us uh, apply what we've learned. Before we even get into the scripture, I want to give you the illustration, because I think this illustration will help you tie this all together, all right? So here's the illustration. Imagine that I'm the father of 10 children, okay? Sorry. (laughs) And... During the summer, I gather all the little children and I say, kids, I want to make you a promise. The promise is this Christmas, I'm taking you to Disney World. Yay, dad is great. Yay. Okay. Um, And they say, what do we need to do to earn that trip to Disney? And I say, nothing. It's purely my graciousness. I want to treat you purely out of love. So there's no conditions. In fact, all you have to do is believe me. Do you believe me? Yes, we believe you. In fact, if you believe me, close your eyes, hold out your hand, and I put a ticket to Disney in each of their hands. Then I take them back because they're going to lose them, and I give them to Mom, right? (laughs) Okay, so let's call that the Disney promise. Okay? Then, about a month later, it's time for school to start, and I say, let's talk about something different. We'll call this the school rules. I expect perfect scores this entire semester. I don't mean just A's. I mean 100% on each test, quiz, and homework assignment. All right? 100% and they go, yes, we'll do that. All right? So then December comes. End of the school year. Two of them get straight A's. Not 100%, but straight A's. Two of them get F's. And six of them get B's and C's and a mixture of of other grades. Now, imagine the A students saying, well, we're the ones who get to go to Disney. The rest of you, you didn't get A's. We're the ones who've earned our way to Disney what would I do? I would step in and I would say, now wait a minute, A students, if you want to base going to Disney on the school agreement, then not even you can go. Because you didn't get 100%. You got A's, you did pretty well, but you didn't get 100%. The school covenant is about perfection. And you all failed. But The Disney promise was not based on performance. It was based on promise. And you all just trusted me. That's the basis upon which we're going to Disney. By trying to force your brothers and sisters to go with the school promise or the school agreement, you are confusing covenants. You have covenant confusion is your problem. Now, what does that have to do with our text? Well, God made a covenant, a promise to Abraham. He promised him some land. He promised him that he would be the father of many, uh, many nations. Uh, He promised him that the Gentiles would be blessed through a descendant of his. And that promise was an eternal unconditional promise. In fact, the Abrahamic promise, out of that we do get the gospel. We get Christ in the gospel. Now, uh, 430 years later, God made a second covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. It was a temporary, conditional, performance-based covenant. Right? Do this stuff, and you can stay in the land. Everyone failed. Now, in the time of Paul, though, some Jews thought they did pretty well. These were the A students. And they wanted to make the Gentiles' salvation dependent on keeping the Mosaic Covenant. And in essence, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to say, wait a minute. If you want to make going to heaven based on the Mosaic covenant, then even you fail. Because that covenant required perfection. The Abrahamic covenant, on the other hand, the Abrahamic promise was not based on performance. It was based on pure grace. You believe and you receive the promise. You have covenant confusion. That, in essence, is what he's trying to explain here in this argument in Galatians 3. Let me put it in words here so if we get lost, we can at least, this is our north star to take us back. The temporary, conditional, performance-based Mosaic covenant did not replace the eternal, unconditional, promise-based Abrahamic covenant. You get that? That's what he's going for. He's saying the temporary conditional performance-based Mosaic covenant did not replace the eternal, unconditional, promise-based Abrahamic covenant. Now, with that in mind, are you following that? Say yes. If you really aren't following it, go no. If you're lying, say no. Okay. All right, so here we go. I'm going to go verse by verse now um, through his argument And hopefully the illustration will keep us on track, all right? So verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once Once you have your will drawn up and notarized and signed, it can't be changed, all right? The Abrahamic covenant was given, and guess what? It's still on. Even if another covenant is made, the Mosaic covenant, it doesn't cancel out the Abrahamic promise, is what he's saying. Now, when I read this, a question comes to mind. If you you can't end or annul a covenant, wasn't the Mosaic covenant, wasn't the second covenant annulled yes it was well why doesn't this rule apply to the mosaic covenant because the mosaic covenant was broken by one of the parties israel you see the abrahamic covenant was a one way unconditional covenant it can't be broken because it's only god living up to it the mosaic covenant was between god and israel they broke it you break your contract it is annulled, right? So that's what verse 15 is saying. Abrahamic covenant, still on. Mosaic covenant, didn't cancel it, right? Now, what Paul needs to do next is to establish that the Mosaic covenant was temporary. But before he does that, he needs to establish that the coming of Christ was predicted in the Abrahamic covenant. So here's how he does that. In verse 15, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, the ESV uses the word offspring. Here's a case where I'm going to agree with the other translations. I don't like the word offspring. Uh, The the Greek word is actually uh, better translated seed. So the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to his offsprings, or to his seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, seed, who is Christ. Now what's going on here? Well, Paul is capitalizing on the fact that the word seed is a collective noun See, this is... Did Paul believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Yes. He is basing the gospel on whether a noun is singular or plural. That's how, how uh, uh, much Paul believed in the precision of Scripture. Now, what's he saying? Well, the word seed is collective. It's a collective noun. What does that mean? You can't tell whether it's singular or plural... Outside of the context. That is true of the word seed in English, in Greek, which Paul wrote, or in Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in. In all three languages, the word seed is a collective noun. Kind of like uh, the word deer. If we're driving down the road and I say, well, would you look at the deer? If you don't look, you don't know if I'm talking about one deer standing on the side of the road or a herd of deer. It's a collective noun. What Paul is saying is the promise was made to Abraham and his seed. Now, in some contexts, in the Old Testament, the word seed means a multitude of his descendants. In other contexts, it means one person referring to Christ. And I think the text Paul is probably thinking of is Genesis 22. This is after Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, and God rescues him, and then God reaffirms the promise. God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, your seed, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now there, seed is clearly referring to a multitude. How do we know that? Because the example he gives is the sand of the seashore, the stars of the heaven. So, uh, so here the blessing goes to the multitude of Israel. But now something interesting happens in the next sentence. And your offspring, seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, or in your seed, shall... All the nations of the earth be blessed. There seems to be a narrowing down of the seed from a multitude to one of the seeds of Israel. And we know that it is Christ through which all the nations will be blessed. So I think Paul is saying seed here is plural. Seed here is singular and it's referring to Christ. Why is that important? To show that the gospel was in seed form in the promise given to Israel. Okay? So now let's let's get back to the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, now the law is referring to the Mosaic covenant and the laws given by God through Moses to the people of Israel. What I mean is this the law which came 430 years afterwards, after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So, here, let's put up a little timeline. Abraham lived around 2000 BC, Moses lived about 500 years later, then we have Christ, then we have today. Okay? Um, God made the promise to Abraham, then. 430 years later, God gives the law to the people of Israel. The law, and we're going to see that it it ends when Christ comes. It's given with Moses. The law given to Moses does not annul the promise. The Judaizers, the false teachers in in, uh, Galatia, wanted to say the Abrahamic promise Stops here and the law takes over. No, Paul is saying Abraham continues. It's an eternal covenant. This is a temporary one that does not annul the Abrahamic covenant. That picture is in essence the argument. But let's keep going. Paul says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If going to Disney is based on your performance, then it's not based on promise. But I made it based on promise. Quit switching covenants is what he's saying. So now, doesn't this raise the question, why then would God give the law? If the promise is what saves us, what's the need of dropping this bag of law on the people of Israel? Okay? Why then the law? Good question. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. Now we got to need to talk about what that means, okay? until the offspring or the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So it was added at this point until Christ comes. So it was temporary, okay? What does it mean it was added because of transgressions? I think it me- that means two things. One, the Mosaic law and really any law from God shows sinners that they are sinners in need of a savior. That's the stated purpose of the law in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God gave the law. He dumped the law here to give knowledge of sin, to show that they are sinners in need of a savior. That's the first thing that I think It was added because of transgressions means. But there's a second thing I believe it means. And that is the sacrificial system, the sacrifices and the temple worship and so forth uh, in the Mosaic law all pointed to Christ. The sacrifices were a way of dealing with sin until the true sin bearer came. They were types pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. But once Christ arrived, there's no more need for the law. Because the types, the sacrifices, don't do anything. They only point to the fulfillment in Christ. But when he shows up, they're now ready They're ready for the gospel, okay? Now, if you're not confused already, let me really confuse you now, okay? Paul then goes on and says, and it, the the Mosaic law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What? What? I think the best way to to, to explain this is just to quote Thomas Schreiner, who is a scholar. He says this, Lightfoot, another commentator, says there are 250 to 300 interpretations of what this could mean. So I'm going to go through all of them. But he says, let's skip through all that. And then Schreiner says, The main idea of the verse seems clear in the text. On the one hand, the law is inferior to the promise because it required mediation. From God to angels to Moses to the people. On the other hand, the one God spoke directly to Abraham. Hence, the promise is clearly superior to the law. The indirect way the law came to Israel suggests that it should not be placed on the same plane as the promise. All he's doing is he's saying this. The direct promise from God directly to Abraham that's uh, superior to the law given to Moses. It was God through angels to Moses to the people of Israel. That's all he's saying there. So let's not get bogged down by that. Okay? Now, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And and, like the second that comes out of Paul's mouth, he says, certainly not. Not. Somebody might say, oh, okay, well, one was a promise, the other is performance-based. They're, they have opposite intentions. No, they actually serve one another. Right? Let's say my motive in promising my kids that we're going to go to Disney is to display my grace to them, to, to these undeserving little sinners. Okay? I can, I can show my grace by giving them a promise that we're going to Disney, and I can highlight their undeservedness by giving them the school covenant, showing that they fall short of what's expected, but I'm still taking them to Disney. That, in essence, is what the Mosaic Law did. It highlighted the sinfulness of people, so grace was even more gracious. Then Paul says this, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. The assumption is no law, not even the Mosaic law, could give life. Here again, if you're looking for a verse in Scripture that teaches that you're not saved by any kind of law, Old Testament law, New Testament law, your own law, It's this verse, the fact that Christ came shows that no law could give life. Well then, what was the purpose of the law? But the scripture, the law in scripture, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive. So it imprisoned us, it held us captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. You know, it, In essence, the law is like the person who speeds all the time, and they think they're doing fine until Officer Friendly, with his radar gun, zzz, captures you and imprisons you and shows you that you are a violator in need of help. That was the purpose of the law. Um, So let me show you how the law, God's law, captures you and imprisons you. And I'll I'll do what Ray Comfort, and uh, it's it's Ray Comfort and Todd Friel and uh, Kirk Cameron, those guys, they go out witnessing and they go up to people and say, can I ask you a question? Are you a good person? Everybody says, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And they say, okay, can I give you the good person test? Let's just go through some of God's, uh, God's commandments. Have you ever lied? Well, we all lie. Yeah, I've, I've lied. And they say, well, do you know that Scripture says all liars' portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur? <laughs> okay, have you ever stolen anything? Even something small, some time from work. Have you ever cheated on your taxes, ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, I've, I've done that. What's that make you? A thief. Have you ever committed adultery? No, I've never commit. Jesus said if you've ever lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? Well, come on, everybody does that. So you have just admitted by your own admission that you're a lying, thieving, adulterer. Now, they might get mad, but the law has now imprisoned them. If the standard is perfection, you're toast. Maybe some of you here this morning, you've never thought of it that way. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Jesus this or God that? Have you ever lusted? Then you have violated his law. You deserve to go to hell. What, what can I do? What hope is there to be saved? Ah, now the glory of the gospel. Jesus died in your place to pay the full price for your sin. How do I get what he did? Trust him. Turn from your sin and turn to him and trust him and you will be saved. That's the argument from the covenants or from covenant confusion you get it? Okay. Um, Now we're going to do two more rather quickly. And these are illustrations. The the illustration from the guardian. All right. The the Greek word uh, pedagogos was a guardian. What's that mean? Well, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. What's a guardian? Well, first of all, let me explain what Paul's doing here. Here, all of salvation history is being illustrated by by one child, by a child coming of age, growing up. The big picture here is we're following this child growing up, and the law does one thing, and then Christ comes and does another thing when, they're, when they come of age. So the reference to us here is all of humanity. So he kind of goes in and out between giving one illustration of one child, but it applies to us as individuals. So it can be kind of confusing. All right? but, but what he's saying here is the law was the guardian of humanity until humanity grew up, and it grew up when Christ came. What is a guardian? Well, here's from the MacArthur Study Bible. The Greek word pedagogos denotes a slave whose duty it was to take care of a child until adulthood. The guardian escorted the child to and from school and watched over their behavior at home. Guardians were often strict disciplinarians, causing those under their care to yearn for the day when they would be free from the guardian's custody. The law was our tutor, our guardian, our pedagogios. Uh, the law was our tutor, which by showing us our sins was escorting us to Christ. Stop doing that, Johnny. Get in line. You know, Picture with a stick. Don't grab that candy. Get do- and the little kid is like, I can't wait till I'm 18 years old and I'm free of this. Okay? That's the purpose of the law. Uh, this little Prince Georgie, right? <laughs> Isn't he cute kid? Right? One day, he'll be king with all kinds of power and all kinds of freedoms. But right now, there's his nanny, and he's got other disciplinarians, and uh, little King, King George is under the control. Doesn't she look like a nanny? She just looks like, we are not going to have any fun. Time for your bath. Put your toys away, right? Um, in essence, you, uh, b- before Christ came, right? picture all of humanity, uh, you were a baby under the control of the Mosaic law. Don't do this. Don't do that. You're a sinner. Boy, you are a sinner. <sighs> Christ comes. He frees us from the nanny. So, so here, but now that faith has come, and what, what that means, now that the Christian faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Um, you've, you've grown up and you're a true son of God now. You were a son of God, but, but you still were under the control of, of the nanny. Now you're an adult son of God. Right? So that's the illustration from the guardian. Okay. Now here's the illustration from being an heir. By the way, I'm gonna hit, I just skipped verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. They're very complicated. They deal with baptism, they deal with roles of men and women. I'm gonna give separate a separate sermon to deal with, with that. But at the end of chapter three, Paul says this and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. See, Jesus was the offspring, the seed, but you are the plural offspring. Heirs according to promise. So so now he's going to focus on, before he's focusing on the fact that you're a son free of the guardian. But you are also now, when you've come of age, an heir to incredible blessing. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So let's use, uh, use little Prince George. Do you know that one day little Georgie will inherit Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle? I would just want to cut the lawn there. I mean, look at that. Um, Holyrood Palace and Hillsborough Castle; those are just his primary homes. <laughs> then there's the vacation homes and the planes and the yachts, and it's all his. But not right now. He's just a little kid with a with a nanny watching over him. And right now, as a little baby. He doesn't know about this. All he cares about is playing with his ABC blocks. In fact, he's no different than the servants who watch over him. Now, um, Paul says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the, now he calls the law, the elementary principles of the world. Interesting phrase. MacArthur says this, elementary is from a Greek word meaning row or rank and was used to speak of basic foundational things like the letters of the alphabet. In light of its use in verse 9, it is best to see it here as a reference to the basic elements and rituals of human religion. Paul describes both Jewish and, Jewish and Gentile religions as elementary because they're merely human, never rising to the level of the divine. Both Jewish religion and Gentile religion centered on man-made systems of works. They were filled with laws and ceremonies to be performed so as to achieve divine acceptance. All such rudimentary elements are immature, like behaviors of children, under bondage to A guardian. Now, in verses 8 and 9, Paul links the, the phrase elementary principles to demons. Wanting to go back to the ABCs of religious rituals is not only a sign that you're not saved, but may even be a sign of demonic bondage. I don't like having to, to really think through the gospel and, and, and read the Bible on my own and have a personal walk. I liked it back when you just went to church and you went through the rituals. He's saying, grow up and put on your big boy pants. But it was so much easier when we just did this ritual and that ritual You know, some people say this. They go, well, so-and-so, my relative or my friend, I don't think they're saved, but they are very religious at least. And I think Paul would say, what? They're infantile legalists enslaved to the ABCs of man-made religion. They are being held captive by demonic power. Don't go, they're not saved, but at least they're religious. That's not a good thing. That's a demonic thing. It's an infantile thing. But you're not like that, Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. So uh, here, Jesus existed before he was born. And he was born of a woman, Mary born under the law. Why is that important? Jesus was under the Mosaic law and he kept it perfectly in your place for you. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. He died on the cross in your place. When you have faith in him, you become a child of God by adoption. Now, what this assumes is none of you start out as a child of God. That goes against, basically, the assumption of the entire world. You hear this on the radio and on TV all the time. Oh, we're all God's children. No, you're not. In fact, the Bible says you're born an object of wrath, a child of wrath. In John 8, Jesus called the Jews who didn't believe in him, he said he referred to their father, the devil. They're children of the devil. They didn't like that. But when you trust in Christ, he takes you from being a child of wrath and adopts you into his family as his very own child. Let me, let me end with this. There's a When I was teaching downtown at Moody, I had a girl in my class. Her name is Hallie. And. Um, Hallie's Chinese, and she only had one arm. One day I said, can you tell me your story? And she said, I was born in China without an arm. My parents threw me away. Maybe literally in a garbage dump, I don't know. Um, She was brought then to an orphanage, and then some American Christians went to the orphanage And adopted her. And now she's raised in America. In a Christian family. And going to Moody Bible Institute. That's our picture. We were abandoned. Going our own direction. In the garbage heap. When God in his grace sent his son. And you just simply believed, and you were adopted. And now, you think little Georgie has riches? It's nothing compared to the riches you have in Christ. So Paul ends it this way. He says, and because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, By the way, legalists always say, well, if you take the rules away, people are going to sin. Christians gone wild, so keep the rules on them. And what he's saying here is God takes, in, in the gospel, takes the rules and the ABCs, the external rules away, but he replaces it with the Holy Spirit inside. We grow up. And the Holy Spirit that loves God produces in us a love for God and we want to obey. So don't say, oh, we've got to keep the rules on everybody. No, there are rules. But God has given us something better. A desire to follow those rules. Okay? And then the final. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Let's pray.